0: All right, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, We are going to have some fun with this series. Um, You know, we, we finished Romans, and there's a lot of teaching, and then there's a lot of, I guess you would say, practical stuff. Well, when you get into the Kings, when you get into Old Testament history, you get into real life. And as you all know, real life can be messy, it can be strange. Um, It's never, ever boring, and so as we go into studying about these kings, we're going to see, I think, some really interesting things, some very strange things, um, like really weird, Uh, but then also we're going to continue to look for um, the the truth, which is that Jesus is a far better king than any of these uh, that are chosen or appoint themselves to be kings. He is greater than all of them. So... Um it's, it's worth kind of going back just a little bit to set a little context, um, and so I'll do that actually in two phases. Uh, we'll first start with Israel as a nation. Um, so <clears throat> the days of, from the days of Moses to the days of Samuel, which is where we are going to start, uh, Israel had been led by people occupying the office of judge. That office is, is more than what we give it today. It is what we give that office today, but it was more than that. Um, So it was definitely making legal rulings based on the Word of God, the law of God. Um, It was settling disputes, uh, but it was also providing spiritual leadership to the people. Um, We studied, it's been several years ago now, but we studied the book of Judges, and we saw judges that were more like military leaders. Um, We saw judges that were more like spiritual leaders, and pretty much everything in between, we saw that. And so what we must understand is that these judges, this was part of God's plan for the people. So Moses and Joshua were both judges on a, uh, basically a national level. So all the Jews would have submitted, or all the Israelites, they weren't Jews yet, uh, they would have submitted to the judges at that particular time. Uh, But then after that, they dropped to more of a regional level, so there were judges over this tribe, or a few tribes, a handful of people in an area, um, but they, they weren't national like that. Now most of the judges came from, and all of them I think were supposed to come from, the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi was supposed to hold the people accountable to the word of God and provide spiritual leadership, and so some of the judges were that and some of them were not that. Um, But the judges, one thing we know, um, because some very interesting stories come out of it, the judges were not perfect, but they were part of what God had told the people was his plan from way back. So I've got a um, passage in here, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, says, "...you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you. According to your tribes, they shall judge the people with righteous judgment." So, according to God's plan, there should have been a judge for every tribe. Every town should have officials. And so he wanted basically for there to be small regional self governing bodies, and then God was going to be the king over that. That was not like anything that anybody really ever had. In fact, you can look, there's really no nation that ever totally functioned that way and, and that it actually worked. There there were times. Uh, especially during this time frame where there were groups of city-states, but it always became an empire or either they fell away. Like there was always somebody that rose up to be a king or either all the kind of civilizations kind of fell apart. So what Israel was doing was different than what the rest of the world was. That shouldn't come as a surprise. God had called them to be different. He had called them to be peculiar and set apart. And so that's exactly what they were and that's exactly what they were doing. Now, the reason that Samuel was a national judge instead of a regional judge is because there weren't worthy candidates to be judges in these other tribes. You see, people were supposed to pass on their understanding of the word of God, not their understanding, but the truth of the word of God, pass on the law to their children. So their children were supposed to know the law and know how to live according to the law. In other words, the righteousness of Israel was supposed to be self-perpetuating. It was supposed to go from generation to generation. But it didn't happen that way. People weren't faithful. Um, Over and over again in the book of Judges, we see that people did what was right in their eyes instead of doing what was right in God's eyes. People began to make themselves the law. And because of that, they certainly didn't pass down the law of God from one generation to the next. Um, So we see that actually... There weren't worthy people. In fact, even among the judges, not all of them were what we would consider worthy when it comes to being a judge themselves. So there was supposed to be a natural process for cultivating judges, but that process fell apart, not because of God's unfaithfulness. That wasn't the case at all. It was because the people weren't faithful. They were not remembering God. If you really want to to put some work in, read through, Deuteronomy would be enough, but read through it and just highlight where God says, Remember me. Just highlight where God says, Remember me. You would think it would be really difficult to forget God, but they did it regularly. They forgot God. They forgot to serve Him. That would be a worthwhile study just to notice how many times does God say, Remember me. Remember my word. Remember these things that I'm saying to you because it was significant and the people still failed to do that. So because they weren't passing on their religion and they weren't passing on the the, the words that God had given them, Israel became very secular. They became secular in in their thinking and in the the way that they wanted to be governed. They didn't want to submit to judges anymore. They wanted something entirely different. Um, And so on this matter, it was only a matter of time before they fulfilled a prophecy that God would eventually say to them. In fact, um, it's in Deuteronomy seventeen fourteen. He says, "When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, then say, or and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me." So God had said even back then, "There's going to come a day where you're going to want a king." like the other nations that are around me. He said that then. Now, if you read that in context, it's not necessarily a negative thing. God just says it's going to happen. This will occur. You will ask for a king like the um, kings uh, around you or like the nations around you. So in that passage, what God goes on to do is warn them. Your kings should not seek to have a bunch of horses. And the reason for that is because at that time, horses were domesticated in Egypt, and so you'd have to go back down to Egypt to get those. And God had told them, don't go back down to Egypt. And so that was one thing. Another thing that they could not do, uh, or should not do at that particular time, is acquire many wives. Acquiring many wives is going to lead them to go astray from God. They're going to follow the gods of these other wives instead of the, wives of, uh, or instead of the god of their, their forefathers. And then also, he said that they should not um, acquire an excess of silver and gold because then that's something that you have to protect. It's something that you have to preserve. It's something that you have to expand. It's, it's always negative. And so don't go get horses. That'll lead you back to Egypt. Um, don't, don't get a, a bunch of wives. And certainly don't go and, um, and, and, and get a bunch of gold because then you'll have many, many worries. The other thing that God says is that the king should have a copy of the book of the law with him at all times, that he should read it day and night, that he should meditate on it, and that he should apply it in all of his judgments. And so the king was to be, if they were going to have a king and follow God's plan, he was going to have to not be seeking to enrich himself or to, to make f- basically phony alliances between him and other nations. We'll talk about that when we get to Solomon. But then also, that they, they shouldn't be seeking this, this gold. They should be experts in the law. None of these things actually happen. Actually, when we look at this in just a little bit, we can look at just Saul, David, and Solomon, we can see that, first of all, Saul knew absolutely nothing about the law. He proves that time and time again. He lived probably five miles from Samuel, who was revered as a prophet and a judge in the land, didn't know the guy. Didn't know who Samuel was. Just was a stranger to him. So he had no really understanding of of Judaism. No understanding of how the, the, the nation had been ran. No understanding of the word of God. He demonstrates that over and over again when he's trying to, you know, get God to do things for him or get Samuel to do things for him. He knows nothing about the law. Well, David became... Really, at at that point, the wealthiest person anywhere in the region, he built basically an empire during that time. So the gold and silver thing, that's all on on David. And then, of course, Solomon had hundreds of wives. And so certainly um, he broke that. And so just in your first three, you've broken everything that God said. God says, don't do this, and and they absolutely do it instead. So after breaking um, every command, which uh, God gave specifically about kings, It gets worse. It goes from bad to worse as you continue to read these stories, and so that's kind of where we're at. The people had all together; they had turned away from God, and and so they're looking at this point. Let's be like the other nations. Um, I'll get into some of the political reasons for that in just a minute, but um, they had decided to reject God as their king and seek an earthly king. But it's going to become a disaster. So. The period of the monarchy, um, the the monarchical history of ancient Israel, is very interesting, but it is marked by tragedy. Over and over again, it is marked by tragedy. Um, So let's put this sermon into one sentence, just in case um, I ramble on and you don't understand what I'm trying to say. Seeking to be like the world will lead us to misery, but trusting Him will lead us to joy. It's just that simple. When we try to be like the world, it's going to lead us to misery. You'll be happy for a minute, but it's going to lead to misery. But when we trust him, that will lead us to true joy. Unfortunately, Israel is over and over again an example of what not to do. So let's look at First Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's just 22 verses. Uh, we'll see <clears throat> what was said and what was done there. And then we'll go, um, we'll go our, our way from that. So when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. But the thing displeased Samuel, and when, he, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Now, I titled this How to Invite a Disaster. And so we have three points. Um, And I think that we can definitely kind of see where this is going. Point one is going to be mishandle adversity. We know that adversity is going to come all the time. We're always going to be facing something that is an unfortunate situation. Sometimes it's completely out of our hands. Sometimes it is our own making. But how we handle that adversity when we face it is going to determine whether or not we head towards disaster or not. So before we actually get into today's text, now let me go into a little bit more recent context of the things that have been happening that got us to 1 Samuel chapter 8. As you notice, we, we started eight chapters in, and there will be you know, jumping and there will be moving in this sermon series, um, but when we take a text, we'll, we'll teach it, and, and I'll try to catch you up always. So although Israel had been ruled by judges for several generations, the number of, of judges was dwindling so much that they actually needed a miracle. Um, and so Samuel was born to a barren woman. Um, so, so she was the second wife of a man. The first wife had children. Hannah was her name. She had no children. Um, and so she prayed and, and, and she petitioned the Lord and God answered her prayer and, and a son was born to her. And so she devoted Samuel to the service of the Lord. She had a son. She had done what she was supposed to do. So Samuel was to serve the Lord. And so Samuel entered into the service of Eli, who was the judge at that particular time. Eli was growing old, and it was already known that his sons were not righteous. They were not following after him. And Eli does rebuke his sons, but apparently he doesn't do enough because God eventually judges Eli and his sons and says he's going to cut off Eli's house. And so that was a pretty powerful judgment against uh, against Eli and his house at that particular time. And God also says that Samuel will be the next judge. So as time passes, Samuel grows. The the Bible says that it becomes clear that Samuel is a prophet from the Lord and the next judge, but also all the words. It says that none of the words of the Lord hit the ground, meaning that, that Samuel paid attention to everything. Nothing fell through the cracks. Every law that God had given, Samuel was keeping, Samuel was enforcing, Samuel was teaching. Samuel was a good judge. He was what God had intended him to be in all of that. So one of the problems that Israel faced, and this, this, this predates, uh, Samuel, this goes all the way back to Joshua and the conquest, the most powerful people in Canaan were not the Israelites. It was actually the Philistines. So this is in the Iron Age, and the Israelites did not have iron weapons, and the Philistines did. And you might say, well, that makes a big difference. Yes, it does. It makes enough of a difference. Okay, but what we see is in, in, the, in the scenes that set up this chapter here, Samuel chapter 8, The Philistines come out to war against Israel. Now, the reason this happens is because God is cutting off Eli. And so, ultimately what happens is there's a battle and the Israelites lose. And so they say, hey, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant forward. And when we bring the Ark of the Covenant forward, then we can go out in victory because the Ark will go before us. The way that they say it indicates that they were trusting in the Ark instead of the God of the Ark. So even at that point, there's idolatry going on. Even among God's things that God said to make, he didn't say to worship it. So what happens is Samuel's sons go out and they bring the ark out. Um, They're in the presence of the ark and they're wicked and so they actually die. So uh, Eli's both of his sons die and the Philistines capture the ark and they bring it back to their place. Well, what happens is is when news gets back to Eli that the ark has been taken by the Philistines, both of his sons has died, he falls backwards, uh, breaks his neck, he's dead. So the house of Eli is cut off. Pretty drastic, but that's what happens. Okay, so the Philistines, now this is the part where the people need to remember this. The Philistines have the ark in their temple. They're not supposed to. So what happens is, is the first night, they set the ark by a statue of their god, Dagon. And so the statue is there, the ark is there, and when they wake up in the morning, the statue has fallen over, face forward. That's, that's, that's the curse, of the, he's fallen over, right? Okay, so they stand Dagon back up. The next morning, he's fallen over again, but this time his head is off and his hands are cut off, and they're laying in the threshold of the temple. So it wasn't like it just fell and the statue broke. No, it was definitely intentionally staged. God made this happen so that they would know, wait a minute, we're not supposed to have this ark. So they start getting tumors. All kinds of terrible things start happening to the Philistines. And so they bring the ark back to Israel and give it back. And they are subjugated by the Israelites. But who won that battle? It wasn't the Israelites. It wasn't their military genius. It wasn't that the Philistines forgot how to fight. They could not stand against God. God had went out before them, and God had fought their battles. Now, spoiler alert, that's exactly what Israel is asking for a king to do, but God's already doing that. It's not like God didn't do that. God always did that. When they believed, and in some cases even when they didn't believe, God went before them and fought their battles. But they simply could not trust God. They did not trust God. So when the Philistines bring the ark back, that enters into a time of peace between the Israelites and the Philistines and the Amorites. There is peace in the land during that time. And apparently that peace leads people to become complacent. And it seems we don't really have evidence of this and God doesn't speak to it, but maybe even Samuel got complacent because his sons that are coming up after him are not like him. Now, God doesn't judge Samuel the way he judges Eli, so maybe it was something entirely different. Maybe Samuel did what he was supposed to do and the kids just went their own way. But what we do know is that his sons were also um, unrighteous. They were unworthy. They were not like Samuel. They were corrupted by the power of their office. And so the whole disaster begins with a perversion of justice. So the judges did have a powerful position. They could settle disputes. They could apply the law. And anytime you have somebody that can settle settle disputes, apply the law, those kinds of things, they are vulnerable to being bribed. If we don't think that happens in America today, we're quite foolish. They were vulnerable to being bribed, and they took the bribes. They became corrupted, and so that is a perversion of justice. And so the people begin to cry out, saying, Hey, this isn't right, this is a problem. Yes, we are absolutely going to face situations like this, situations that are not fair. But in that, we must choose to trust God in those situations. People saw an unfair situation. They just naturally assumed that these guys were going to be judges until they were dead and that more unrighteous judges were going to rise up and that was going to be the cycle. And so instead of going to Samuel and saying, hey, Samuel, is there anything God can do about your sons? They go to Samuel with a preconceived notion. They go to Samuel with a solution already in hand. Um, And so that begins to be a a really big problem for them. You see, the very same problem had happened in the previous generation. There were unrighteous sons of the prophet, or, or unrighteous sons of the judge, and God wiped them out. Who's to say that God couldn't have done that again? But the people did not give God a chance to do what God had promised that he would also do. We're going to face adversity every day just like the people of Israel did, but we must remember that turning to the Lord is always preferred to taking matters into our own hands. It is way easier to take matters into your own hands. We're going to mess it up, we're going to fail, and it's going to be horrible, but it's easier. It doesn't require faith. It doesn't require prayer. It doesn't require patience. It doesn't require taking that step where you don't know what's going to happen next. Because if we take matters into our own hands, we know what we're going to do. We make a plan, we try to execute that plan. Probably doesn't work, but at least that's what we try to do. But if we trust God, if we step out in faith and trust Him, then things can go the way that God plans for them to go. So the problem gets worse when the people choose not to trust the problem to God. They don't go to Samuel asking God. They go to Samuel with a plan in, in place. They wanted a king like the other nations have. Now I'll tell you, It sounds very childish. What they say, how they say it, it all sounds... We want to be like the other kids. We want the things that the other kids have. It really does sound like that. But they had looked around and they had seen that other kings protect their people even when they're unrighteous. Let's get real for a minute. The people of Israel suffered when they were unrighteous. They weren't protected by God when they were doing wrong. When they did wrong, they received punishment. That's the way it should be. What the people of Israel wanted was even when we're bad, even when we don't do what we're supposed to do, we want a king that's going to be there and defend us. We want a king that's going to build strong walls. We want a king that's going to build up a military. We want a king that's going to go out and defeat our enemies, and then we can live like we want to. If we've got that in place, then we can be what we want to be. They didn't want to live the lives that God had told them to do. Here's the reality some of the people were already becoming wealthy. Um, Israel was a blessed land. It was a fertile land. It was a place where you could become wealthy. They didn't want their wealth to be at risk. And so they knew that if they continue the way they are, and the people are unrighteous and turn away from God, God's going to judge them again and again. And that was kind of the pattern that it, had that it happened. They didn't want their stuff at risk. That's why they wanted a king, because the king wouldn't allow those kinds of things to happen. In other words, read that, our solution is better than God's solution. That's never true, but that's certainly what the Israelites thought in that moment. So, they basically um, ignore what God had done with the Philistines. They ignore the provision and the way that God had protected them throughout the generations. um, And they want to go their own way. So, obviously, Samuel is displeased. Samuel knew what the word of God said. Samuel knew that they were supposed to appoint judges. They were supposed to to basically obey the plan that God had and let God be their king. So he was displeased. He was very upset by this. Um, And he's also disturbed because God does allow them to go their own path. God tells them that the people have rejected him, not Samuel. God tells them that the people have been in this cycle of rejecting him all the way since Egypt. It's nothing new. And we can see from the rest of the Old Testament that this pattern is going to continue. They continue to reject God and go after these false gods no matter what. So God does allow the people to walk their path of unfaithfulness. Now this faithlessness will teach them a lesson about getting what they ask for. We probably all have some idea or some memory of getting exactly what we asked for and it not being what we wanted at all, well, this is, this is Israel, and this is a bad deal, certainly a bad deal, because they showed no humility, they showed no willingness to trust God, they simply wanted what they wanted regardless. So we should use this as a reminder that not every open door was really opened by the Lord. You know, you hear that when you talk to Christians, they're like, well, God opened this door for me, and now there's disaster. Did God open that door? We have to realize that not everything we can do is something that we should do. We still have to ask God, is this your will? Is this what you're leading us to do? He will open doors, or not he, but doors will open for you that you shouldn't walk through. This king door was a door they shouldn't have walked through, but they did. So we got to remain faithful to him, and we need to remain faithful to God's clear instructions in our lives. So the first way to invite disaster, obviously, is to um, basically mishandle adversity. The next thing, and th- we can mishandle adversity, that's, that's a possibility. But God gave them a chance. He warned them. So the next way that we can definitely um, invite a disaster is to ignore the warnings. God gives the people very clear, very bold warnings, and they simply ignore those warnings. So even when the people are being unfaithful, God uh, is good to them he sends Samuel with these warnings they're clear they do seem pretty intense and terrifying um, but they they do not uh, they do not listen so this warning would not have been given if there wasn't time to change their minds. God wouldn't have said this oh by the way you've already messed up but let me tell you what's going to happen no he gives them time to change he gives them time to change their mind, to turn from their unfaithful ways and say, No, God, you can be our king. So he gives them them these warnings. So the people believed that the king would enrich them uh, and protect their riches. But the simplified version of what Samuel says from basically verse 10 through verse 18 um, is that the king is always going to be a taker. And he would diminish the people, diminish their worth, to pursue his own interests. The king's gonna be a taker, he's gonna take everything. So adding one king to the hierarchy is not all it was gonna be. And the people needed to understand that. So you don't just get a king and the king just served, no, the king's gotta have advisors. And then once the advisors tell the king what to do, he's gonna to have to have a whole staff of people that do that. And when the king wants something done and the people don't wanna do it, the king has to have all these agents that make the people do it. Some people call them police, whatever you want to call them. But he's got to have people to make the people do what he wants them to do. And all of these things, just more and more people. It is a litany of bureaucracy that comes with a king or with really any form of government. Samuel was warning the people of that, but they would not listen. So, one of the warnings that the people, uh, or that Samuel gives to the people, um, it really should have sobered them up. It should have caused them to trust the Lord, but it doesn't. So, the people were warned that a king would take their sons and daughters. Now there's a list of ways that he takes their kings and daughters. You see military service. Um, you, you, you see um, domestic service there. You, you, you see everything from high positions to, to the lowliest of positions. But any way you look at it, the king is going to take their sons and daughters. So even though Samuel told them that the king would take their sons and daughters in the service of his kingdom, they didn't listen. Another warning that that Samuel gives to the people, they were warned that the king would take their land and their harvest. He says he's going to take your best land. He's going to take your best vineyards, your best orchards. He's going to take the tenth of that. Now, the tenth is very important. Remember what the tenth really is. The tenth is the tithe, so he's going to take even God's portion. He's going to take that tenth, he's going to take that, and then it's going to be his going to go into his wealth it's going to go into his land he's going to take those things so even though Samuel warned them that their lands and harvest would be taken to finance the monarchy they wouldn't listen the people were also warned that the king would eventually take their freedom notice it says that he will make you slaves in verse 17 he will take the tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves so even though they knew they were going to lose their freedom they would not listen Now here's the really bad one. He even told them the people were warned that the Lord would not hear their cries. So not only is all these bad things going to happen, but when you pray, God's not going to listen to you. God's not going to be moved by your prayers. Lord, we got what we wanted and we don't like it. That's what they would have to say and God would not listen to that. So even though the people were told that they were at a point of no return, that not even God would listen to their cries, they did not listen. That could have been the title of the sermon. They did not listen, because they certainly didn't listen. So surely if the people, surely if people today were to receive the same kinds of warnings, we would listen. We're smarter than the Israelites, right? We're, we're, we're more keyed in to what God says and what God does, and we believe Him more than the Israelites did, right? No, we're not. Unfortunately, this is not the case. The warnings that God gave the Israelites were bold, but it was also clear. Everything you hold dear, everything you're trying to hang on to and protect is going to be taken from you. So their their children, their their valuables, their land, everything, even their freedom, those things they were trying to protect by getting a king are the very things they're going to give up, the very things they're going to lose. That's a bold and clear statement. But I tell you, the gospel is bold and clear as well. It has been bold and clear ever since it was first proclaimed, and people simply do not listen. So we want the world, or we want to be like the world, even though we know that being like the world is sinful, and God's made that abundantly clear. We're not afraid of being um, sinful, even though we know that the wages of sin is death, and the consequences are even more dire than they were for the people of Israel, we still won't listen. How often has the gospel been preached? How often do people hear that ultimately without Jesus there is no hope? The church says it. Not everybody is a faithful gospel preacher, but there are enough that that warning is out there. And people still don't hear it. People still don't listen. We know that without Jesus... There is no hope for the sinner. But He has promised to save us. The very things that people are looking for now, those are the very things that God has offered. People are looking for love. They're looking for joy. They're looking for happiness. They're looking for fulfillment purpose. They're looking for safety and security. Jesus has promised all of these things, but instead, we look to the world. We look to the world for these things because in that we think that we have some control. We think that we have something better. We hang on to the treasures of this earth. Now as we read the back of this book, we find out that all of the things that we treasure now will one day turn to ash. But we still do not trust the Lord. We know that the only real treasure is a relationship with Jesus Christ. But we treat it as something that can be turned on and off like a water faucet. People come to church, people people join into, I guess you would say, Christianity. um, As long as it's entertaining, as long as it's um, comfortable and convenient, we don't go all the time. We don't do what we're supposed to do. We don't follow Jesus Christ. Think about how many people you could line up that would actually come to a service where there was nothing but Bible reading. Maybe a little bit of preaching, but really only Scripture. How many people would come to that? They would say, oh, I, I don't have time for that. Oh, oh, I don't I, I don't want to listen to that. Oh, I can read on my own. I could read on my own time. We've received the same kind of warnings that, that Israel received. The same things that was said to them has been said to us. And even the stakes are higher, but yet we don't listen either. This world today does not listen no more than Israel listened back in their day so what's the final way to invite disaster to insist on making the mistake sure you have you have mishandled adversity you've been warned and then you've ignored those warnings and now the best way to do it is just to insist on making the mistake no matter what God was doing everything he could to protect the people without forcing them everything he could to protect the people from making this mistake but they're going to make it anyway so even among a stubborn people Um, the response that the people gave to Samuel should enter into the Stubbornness Hall of Fame. So he lists all the things that's going to happen. He's going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to take your land. He's going to take your freedom. God's not going to listen. Yeah, but we want to do it anyway. Now, there's stubborn and then there's this. This is very stubborn. This is very clear and very stubborn. So I think it should have its own um, reward in the Stubbornness Hall of Fame. So regardless of all these warnings that they had just received, the people demanded that they receive a king. So here's the problem. Israel would not listen to the voice of the Lord or his messenger. They rejected him. They rejected Samuel. They rejected the Lord. They would not listen. So in a truly sad moment, the people reveal exactly why they want a king. The people wanted the king to do the things that God had always promised for them to do or the promise that he would do for them. So when we look at the things that they say, they say they want a king. They want a king that's going to raise a the military. They want a king that's going to protect them, that's going to go out before them and fight their enemies. Oh, how foolish they are. Kings don't fight wars. The people fight wars. So what they thought was going to happen was that this king was going to have some professional army that wasn't made up of their sons, And that king was going to go out and fight their wars and they would never see violence in their land again. They would never see their finances affected. They would never see their family grieving again. But that's exactly what was going to happen. And they were so foolish because God had promised to do the very things that they were seeking in a king. So in this very book, the Philistines had easily defeated the Israelites. You've got 4,000. I didn't give you these numbers, but in the first little battle skirmish that they had, they lost 4,000 people to the Philistines. Later, they lost 30,000 people to the Philistines when they lost the Ark of the Covenant. They lost all of that, but then God defeated the Philistines for them. God defeated the Philistines for them without a soldier, without a sword, without an arrow, just with His power alone. So ultimately... What they wanted was somebody to do for them what God had always promised. So it was the ultimate rejection of God. So if we leave God in favor of the world, if we leave God and the promises that He's made in favor of the world, we must do it knowing that it's a faithless act. That's what Israel did. Regardless of what God says, we want what we want. And I believe that right now, if we are not doing what God wants us to do, we do it knowing that it is a faithless act. It is something that we know we are going against God. So everything we need and everything that our hearts desires has been accomplished by Jesus Christ, who is our true King. When you think about the things that ultimately motivate us, you get past the the surface level. We want love, acceptance, We want true joy in our lives. We want to feel safe and secure. We want to know what the future holds. We want to know that when we are faced with enemies, we have a defender. We want those things in our lives. Jesus has promised to be that and so much more. But when you tell the world about Jesus, they can't trust Him. They can't believe Him. We shouldn't be surprised because Israel was like that. God had actively defended them, had actively won battles for them, had done things that are completely unexplainable in nature, and they had ignored that. So the world is not much different. But what are we supposed to do? Okay, so, so I've spoken to the world, I've spoken to kind of the, the, the secular part of the church, but what are we supposed to do? One, we should never allow injustice to turn us away from the Lord. We can't do that. Is there injustice in this world? Are there things that are unfair? Absolutely there are. But we can't turn away from the Lord because of that, because God didn't do that. God is fair and just, God is righteousness. So if we see evil, it's not Him, it is the world that is bringing that evil on us. So what else should we do? We should never ignore the warnings of the Lord. God doesn't let us walk blindly into problems. There are always warnings. Now, we may not listen to them. We may ignore them and go head first into that trouble. But they are there. God gives us warnings. And then finally, we should always trust God to keep his promises. God does keep his promises. So what is it that you're seeking? What is it that we want? So we are believers. We have followed Jesus Christ. But what do we want in our lives? And are we trusting God to provide that? Or are we seeking to fulfill that some other way? The things that the Israelites wanted, pretty much every nation wanted. But they were the only nation that had the promise that God himself would give those things to them. But they wanted to be like the other nations. So they were taking the the offering that God was making and throwing it away and saying, no, we want to be like everybody else. Well, let me tell you, for us as believers, we have promises that God has made to us that are more than anybody not in the grace of God can expect. People outside of the grace of God, they can't expect the things that we do. We can expect for God to fulfill His promises in our lives. What we can't do is go try to seek it out in the world. We can never turn toward the world and seek for the world's comforts, for the world's love, for the world's happiness, for the love, security. The, 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 The world can't give those things to us. It will for a moment. It will for a brief moment or a season in our life, and then we'll see that it's really just the empty shell of something that God could have given us in fullness. So let's trust Him. Let's depend on Him. Let's not do what Israel did. Let's not try to be like the world. Let's trust in God instead. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for this day. I thank You for Your Word. And Lord, as we look at Israel, it would be easy to sit in judgment over them but it would also be to look at them and it be like looking in a mirror. Because so often, even after we trust Jesus, we look to the world for the answers to our problems. And I pray that we would not do that any longer, that we would trust in You, that we would depend on You for everything. You have promised to be our everything. I believe that we have been faithfully warned that this world has nothing for us. So I pray that we would be responsive to that warning and that we would simply trust you, for you are good. You are our source of strength, our joy, our protection, and ultimately our salvation. Israel wanted a human king. We want the Lord King Jesus Christ.